All right. So we're going to continue what we kind of started last week. If you weren't here last week, basically we're starting a, probably a four-week mini-series here on, um, we're calling it, uh, I can't remember what we were calling the whole series, Legalism, Liberty, and Love. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about the difference, or, or we talked about uh, legalism and, um, and, and, uh, and antinomianism. Uh, we talked about how legalists and libertines are actually in the same camp. A lot of times in our just without thinking or just naturally we think legalism is over here, antinomianism or lawlessness is over here, and we try to fix one with the other. But if you just step back and look at the whole, you see that they're, they're the exact same thing, just displayed in different ways. Uh, both legalists uh, and libertines uh, are different sides of the same coin. They both define themselves by their relationship to the law. So legalism, because of your strict adherence to laws, that's where you find your worth, your value, and or um, you know, uh, uh, what you are, uh, your righteousness, uh, your merit and honor. And then on the other side, antinomians, in the same way, uh, elevate themselves or glorify themselves by their freedoms, and, and it's their liberties and their freedoms that define them. Uh, and we said what they're both missing is, first and foremost, remembering where they're from, you know, that we are in Christ. If there's any good in us, that's the work of Christ. And all things that we're striving for are in Christ. He's the one that sanctifies. He's the one that, that, that is uh, uh, producing righteousness and holiness and goodness in us. And so there is no honor. There is no glory. And, and we're striving to be forgotten for him to be exalted. So that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, it's lacking love. It's lacking a, a love for Christ and a love for others, which is his command to us that we love others the way that he loved us. And, uh, and that's what both are lacking. So both of them are looking at things that they can do, things that are permissible, things that are not permissible, whatever it is, and they're defining their merit by that. Um, and we said that legalism is living by lists. Antinomianism is living by lusts. So it's just kind of a quick way to, to remember it. Uh, but the point is, is both of them uh, see restrictions or liberty as a proof of maturity and strength. And, and that's going to play into what we're going to talk about today. And we all, we all have this in us. I mean, you look at your convictions, you look at what you do or what you don't do, and you look at that as some sort of evidence of maturity. We talk about the weaker brother a lot, and we're going to talk about that today. It, it's usually the other guy that's the weaker brother, right? And, uh, and what, whatever that means, you know, whether it's, you know, you're over here flaunting your freedoms or you're it, res- restricted by your, your law, uh, we're always looking at ourselves as strong and the ones outside of us as the weaker brother. Um, but many times the, that guy's looking at you going, uh, we're patient with them and we love them, you know. Uh, <laughs> so the remedy for both sins, whether it's legalism or lawlessness, is Christ, like I said, remembering that we are in Christ, remembering our value, our holiness, our righteousness, our freedom are all in Christ, um, and that we are free to be holy, we're free to submit to Christ and to follow him. And we're free to pursue righteousness, free from the law, free from the enslavement to sin, and free to love. A lot of times we just talk about being free, but we don't understand what the Bible, the Bible actually defines what the freedom is. It's not just you're free, go, do whatever you want to do. It's you're free now to actually pursue holiness. You were not free to do that prior. You were enslaved to sin and unable to do anything good or anything righteous or anything holy. So in Christ, you're now free to be holy. The last thing that Christ would do would be to free you from sin and free you from death and free you from the law and then say, now run right back into that enslavement and, and, and submit yourself to your desires, your lusts, your wants, or to some sort of system of religion that will not, that only, that only leads to damnation. And so we, we said this last week. We said in Galatians... Um, that it was, he says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He says, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then 12 verses later, he says, for you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we are free in Christ. Yet there are two immediate warnings right here in Galatians uh, that Paul emphasizes after talking about our freedom. Don't return to, to uh, religious self-righteousness, and don't return to worldliness. Again, if you're free in Christ, the last thing you want to do is run right back to the thing you were enslaved of prior to coming to Christ. Um, but many times, either in our immaturity, 
in, in, our, in, in, in the, the effect that the culture or our friendships around us have on us, uh, we do that very thing. And that's what the Galatians were doing. Paul, Paul says, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that you're leaving Christ so quickly and returning right back to the very thing that he just freed you from. And again, the, 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 the first context there is, is the religious system of the Jews, but it also has implications to worldliness and not being subject again to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of sin. So we don't want to return to religious self-righteousness. We don't want to return to worldliness. And the other thing we mentioned last week, and we'll talk more about today, is that our freedom is not absolute. You do not have absolute freedom in Christ. You've got to always remember that. Just like you don't have absolute authority in a position in Christ, you have the authority that he designated for you. As a husband, you have this authority. As, a, as an employer, you have this authority. You know, as a parent, you have this authority. And in Christ, we have freedom, but we have this freedom. We don't have the freedom to do what we want to do. We have the freedom to do what he's called us to do. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that today. Um, and so our freedom is still submissive to Christ and his word. And it's a submissive, um, submissive to his spirit and submissive to his law. And that is our freedom allows us to be able to be submissive to Christ. And one of the things we're going to talk about today, and this gets to the title of today's lesson, our liberties are always governed and restricted by love. Always. Liberty is always restricted by love. And love does not permit all things. So we're going to talk about that today, and the title of this is Love Lays Aside Liberty for Others. And what we're going to do for the next three weeks, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, because there's, a, there's kind of, a, a, you could say, a, a narrative or an argument that flows through these chapters that comes from a question that the Corinthians asked Paul about liberties and, and about probably, they're probably wrestling with this whole legalism versus liberty stuff, and Paul just goes right at the heart of it and gives us wonderful direction even though this is not the context we're living in, it has direct implications and application in our life uh, here in America in 2023. And so kind of the, to sum up what we're going to talk about today, love will abandon liberty for the good of others and the glory of Christ. Love abandons liberty for the, for the, for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. That's what we are striving to be in Christ. We want to love one another the way he loved us. We want to glorify him in all we do. So today, in chapter 8, we're going to see these, these four points. First, pride destroys others. It destroys us, and it destroys other people. Secondly, love develops others. So it edifies, it builds up, it strengthens, it constructs. Love is what we're striving for, both for personally and for others. And then it leads to two imperatives that, uh, number three, do not harm his anointed one. So that's one of the things that should be a consistent uh, um, uh, rule in our life. We want to strive to never harm those that he has bought with his blood. And, and fourth, we're gonna, we submit to each other in love, which again is a command that we see multiple times in Scripture. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, this does bring up something, though, because, uh, again, we have things in Christ uh, that, that look like uh, contradictions sometimes. Or there's a lot of things in the Bible like, that, uh, like this, biblical paradoxes that, that look like contradictions. But the Bible cannot contradict itself. It doesn't. You know, God, God is unchangeable. God only speaks what is true and what is right. He would never say one thing here and the very opposite over here. He speaks with clarity. He controls language. He communicated to us through language and through his inspired and clear word both who he is, what we are in him, and then how to follow him. And so we do have clarity in the word. However, there are times where there's things in the word that press against one another. And sometimes that, that, that tension needs to be there. And God left tension there purposefully. And you wrestle through that. But, it, but to, to try to alleviate the tension, a lot of times can lead us into something that is not true. We know God speaks clearly. We know he always speaks in a way that's shepherding his children perfectly. We know that everything in the word of God is inspired by him, profitable for reproof, correction, training, righteousness, all that, so we can be equipped and ready to do the work of service he's called us to do. Like I said, there are paradoxes in the Bible that cause us to stop and think and kind of look into the context. We're not going to look at a bunch of them, but I just want to throw this one out there. And this is one that causes a lot of people to stumble, and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> Uh, in Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James turns around James 2.24 and says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
So you read those two verses side by side, and you go, well, which one is it? And the answer is both, exactly. I mean, this, this is it. And, and so they're making two points in two different contexts, but both of these play together in the exact same truth, the exact same outworking. We are justified by faith, uh, and it is not by any sort of works of the law. It's not by your own righteousness and your own doing. However, that we are, though we are justified by faith that God implants to us through His grace, it is works that come out of that faith that prove whether or not that faith is true faith or if it's just you know, a, 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 a demonic faith. I mean, right before that, he talks about even the demons believe that God is one. They got good doctrine. They shudder. I mean, they understand the, the power and the, the, the greatness of God, but, but there's, no, there's no fruit that comes from that. There's no submission. There's no obedience. And so, again, if you read those in the context of what they were written, you see that these things work together, even though side by side, it looks like God's contradicting himself. I think the same sort of thing plays out with all this stuff we're talking about, freedom in Christ and enslavement to Christ, the freedom that, that he grants to us that comes only through him. But then at the same time, you have many things in Scripture that, that don't sound like freedom. And both are totally right. This is just a, a snippet, but here's some things that we have when it comes to freedom and enslavement uh, in Christ or to Christ or for Christ that, that seem like contradictions. But today we're going to look at this and go, they're not. They're, they're, there's part of our freedom. So it says we have freedom in Christ, Galatians 5, we just read that. We're free in Christ, Romans 6 talks about it. Actually, Romans 5 and 6 are both wonderful chapters to go and figure out what this whole, like what we are now in Christ and what that allows us to do and what he calls us to do. Uh, we have liberties as Christians, which we're going to look at today. We're not bound to the Mosaic Covenant, again, back to Romans 6. Uh, we are not the new Israel, Romans 9 through 11. And we've been made holy, perfect, clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And First Peter is very clear on that. All that being said, we're also bound to Christ, and Ephesians 6 talks about that. We're under obligation to submit to him in obedience. It even calls us slaves of Christ a couple of times. And uh, we enslave ourselves to others and submit to others because of who we are now in Christ. And all of those things marry together beautifully and perfectly. And they're displayed both in a love for others, the way that Christ loved us, and in submission to him. You can see it in Christ. He's fully God. He controls all things. He has absolute freedom to do his will and at the same time enslaves himself or submits to his father, does nothing on his own initiative, only does what his father calls him to do, doesn't even speak on his own initiative. And both of those things play out perfectly in the nature and the character of Christ. And we're striving as, as flawed imitators of him in those things. And so just as our Lord was submissive, just as our Lord laid down many of his rights and liberties and freedoms for the sake of others and out of a desire to glorify his Father, we want to do the same thing. But all those things are driven by love. All those things are driven by submission to his word. And all those things are driven by a desire to imitate Christ in whatever we do. And that comes back down to the heart of it. And that's what digs out the legalistic or the antinomian tendencies in us is why we do what we do and, and, and for what purpose and what our motives are. So like I said, sometimes we have things like this in the, in the Word that, that you can, in the context, you can figure out and, and you, you strive to, uh, to, to, to live both, even though, you know, logically, if you just put them side by side, it seems like they contradict. But then there are times where, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but what is revealed to us, we are... Uh, 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 th- we're responsible for those things. Those belong to us, and then we must submit to those and observe what he says in his word. So all the things we're going to talk about are observable, revealed truths that we have to wrestle with. This isn't just the, the mystery that has been unrevealed. These are truths that he's given to us so that we can live by them. And so, like I said, freedom in Christ and enslavement to Christ, sometimes that can be confusing. And you're like, how can both of those things uh, uh, be true. And where is the line? And here's what we want to talk about today. When does your freedom actually become enslavement? And when does enslavement to Christ become a manifestation of your freedom in him? That's what you want to ask yourself. Because many times we go around talking about our liberties, talking about our freedoms, and, and, and other people are going, I don't know if that's a liberty. It looks like you're enslaved. And many times we go around talking about our enslavement to Christ and I think people can look at that and go, it, it sounds like you're bound by a law here. Does that make sense? And so, again, both of these can be true. Our freedoms and our liberties 
gray areas can actually become things that in God's sight are not gray. They're black or they're white. Um, but, uh, and, and they can become enslavement uh, to us. And like I said, our enslavement to Christ, if we're submissive to him and we understand what he's called us to, we actually begin to see that as a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit working within us. And it is an actual outworking of our freedom in Jesus Christ. So that's what we want to look at today. And, and how do we know if we're in bondage to our flesh? Or how do we know if we're in bondage to Christ? How do we know when we need to set aside our freedoms or our rights as loyal subjects to Christ and as imitators of Christ? And when do we need to rejoice in the freedom that he gives us? Those are the things that we need to be asking ourselves all the time. It's not about don't do this, do this. It's not about you have all these liberties in Christ, don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. It's about what has he called me to do? How can I deny myself, lay down my life, submit myself to one another, serve others and love others the way he's called me to, and submit myself to him and strive for holiness in everything that I do? And that's going to help drive what we're trying to do here. So the key to unlocking all this is love, a love of Christ, a love of others. But we don't define that love. The word helps us to understand what that love looks like. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. He is, he's taking a question they've asked him, he's answering it, and he's getting their focus off of themselves and what they think they are able to do or not able to do. And he's going, this is what we do out of a love for Christ and a love of others. So let me give you a real brief background because this is going to play out for the next three weeks as we talk about this. You need to know a little bit about ancient Corinth, all right? So again, uh, I know Shane, actually, this happens so often. Oh, here's your pen, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> you might need that now. Um, I feel like the Lord sets it up where Shane gives the sermon before I give the sermon so many times. But that was so good in there. Again, the whole, uh, you know, basically, actually, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7 is when they start asking questions. So that's a good transitional point because he makes this point at the very end of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, after talking about, uh, you know, the fact that we don't want to... Uh, you know, we've been freed from these things. Now we don't want to submit our, our bodies back to uh, sinful immorality and stuff like that. And, and, he, and he gives this kind of uh, sum-up statement or, or purpose statement in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And uh, that is a, a central point, which then plays out, like I said, in verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him, flee from immorality. And then in verse 19, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? So again, he's sitting there saying, we have freedom. All things are lawful. And the Holy Spirit dwells within your body and you are not free to do anything you want to with your body. It's not your own, you know? Yes, he's freed our body from the, uh, from, 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 Sin and death, you want to say that, or freed us from sin and death, and he will give us a, a new body that will eternally be with him. And at the same time, you don't, you don't have a choice how you live your life. You don't have a choice how you use your body. You don't have a choice in that sense. You're striving to submit to him. In that submission, there's freedom. In that submission, there's liberties. In that submission, you're able to do many things that you can't do in religion. And at the same time, we are completely his. He bought us with his blood. We belong to him. We're his property. And he's going to use us in whatever way he wants. Those are both wonderful, wonderful truths in Christ. So that being said, in verse chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So the first six chapters, he's addressing things he sees or he knows or he's heard about the church. And then he's using the next few chapters to address things they actually asked him about. So in chapter 17, it's things about singleness and marriage. And he's talking about uh, those questions. And then in chapter 8, he says, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. So they're talking about meat sacrificed to idols, the liberty or freedom they have to eat this meat. And then how some people saw that is something they needed to restrict themselves from because that's what they came from, which is what we're talking about. These are questions on liberty and, and law. These are questions on legalism. This is, this is the world we're talking about right here. All that being said, ancient Corinth was a very, uh, it was a thriving city, very prosperous. It had a central location uh, in Greece. Uh, this is uh, basically um, 
you know, this is a drawing of, of what some of the, the things they found in Corinth and a, a, an artist's rendition of what they think it looked like. This is the actual coast uh, now of ancient Corinth and where Corinth would have been. Here's some of the ruins we found in ancient Corinth. Uh, Corinth was part of Greece. So Greece over here, Macedonia down here at the bottom. Corinth is down on the very bottom. You see down there by Athens, Corinth right there. It was part of the southern uh, Greece was divided into two different sections. You had the north and you had the south. Kind of like us, right? You got, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you got the north and you got the south. The southern part was called, uh, I have to pronounce this right, Pel- Peloponnesus. I used to say Peloponnesus, but it's, it's actually, I looked up the pronunciation. Everyone puts the emphasis on the pawn. So I'm trying to, Peloponnesus, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Who cares? It's gone. So, uh, but... Corinth was down here on this little part right here. It's not an island because it had this isthmus that connected it over to uh, the, the rest of Greece. Um, and actually, I, they called it the Isthmus of Corinth. And so this is what it looks like today from aerial view. Uh, used to, you had, a, I mean, they would, for ships to get from this sea to this sea, they would get them off. They'd put logs down there. They'd roll it across. And so they finally dug a canal through there. Now there's a canal over there um, called the Corinth Canal. And I got pictures of that, too, to kind of show you. It's, I mean, it is, you look at it, you're like, that's really tight when that little ship's going through there. Then you see this ship go through there, and you're like, that is really tight. <laughs> so this is it today, and this is how ships get from, I can't remember, I don't know if I wrote them down. Uh, they, they, yeah, they get from whatever seas those were. Did it say on the other map? I can't remember. The Sauronic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth. So anyway. Uh, but if not, they have to go all the way down and uh, back around. And so anyway, they've, they've built a canal now. But that's, uh, that's basically uh, where Corinth is. Um, it was a major city in Greece. Uh, and let's see. Yeah, they would carry their ships over that uh, isthmus. They made a canal. Um, it was a, success, a successful entertainment center. So uh, we know in Athens they had the Olympic Games, right? The, and so in Corinth they actually had the... Uh, the Isthmian Games, and they were held, um, uh, which were held, both of these games were held in Greece. The Isthmian Games, and this is, a, again, a drawing of those games in Corinth. Um, the, they were held in Corinth uh, the year before and after the Olympic Games. So I guess the Olympic Games were every four years. They would hold these uh, games in Corinth the year before and then the year after the Olympic Games. And then, and this actually, I'm, I'm telling you this because, it makes sense when you read chapter 9. Knowing this, when you read chapter 9, you're going to like, that's what he's talking about. So this isn't just fun facts that you can jot down in your little trivia thing. It actually brings context for what we're going to read. Uh, in the Isthmian Games, they gave out these um, pine wreaths to the winner. And then the Olympic Games, they give out these olive wreaths to the winner. We know a lot about the Olympic Games just because that's a tradition that we've, uh, you know, uh, has resurfaced and we're continuing to do it. No one really thinks about the Isthmian Games anymore. But like I said, Paul's going to talk about these wreaths. He's going to talk about these games in the next chapter. And then you're going to be like, that makes so much more sense, understanding where we're coming from. Uh, Corinth was the capital uh, of the Roman province of uh, Achaia. Is that how you say it? Achaia. Achaia is the little store down in Atlanta. Uh, It was a major trade center. Good guess. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was allied with Sparta during the Peloponnesian. Peloponnesian, you do say it that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Peloponnesus and then Peloponnesian. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I did look up pronunciations. When you get to these, especially when reading the Old Testament, like you can, you can just Google it. How do I say Haman? How do I say, you know, whatever? And, and it helps sometimes. And sometimes it makes it way more confusing because you got three different pronunciations. And then you're just like, whatever. Nobody knows. Uh, ancient Corinth was destroyed by Rome in 146 B.C. It was rebuilt again in 44 B.C. The Corinth we're talking about is that Corinth, the rebuilt uh, city. The Roman province flourished. It became the capital of Achaia. Uh, it was the home of the famous temple of Apollo. Um, a son of Zeus, uh, it was the home of, uh, it, was, it was a center for uh, uh, Aphrodite worship, the goddess of love. Uh, there was, they said that during this time they hosted uh, over 1,000 priests and ritual prostitutes that would come down into the city at night and practice their trade amongst the people. Again, when you start reading the, the letter to Corinthians, that helps make thing, things make sense, you know? Because you look at it, again, from our perspective, and you look at some of the things that he's talking to them about, and you're like, are these really Christians? 
And then you understand the culture they're in. You understand what they've been freed from. You understand their, their cultural surrounding, and you go, oh, it, it makes a lot of sense what he's saying in the book of Corinthians. Um, and it helps you to, rather than uh, uh, read into that letter, our setting and our culture, it helps you pull out of that letter things that apply here that, that make a lot more sense understanding where it came from. So, like I said, even in the pagan world, Corinth was known as a place of corruption. That was the reputation of the city. It's kind of like we think of Las Vegas, right? You're like, well, I'm going to go through Las Vegas. People are like, don't, don't stop. Just keep going. You know, don't look at anything. You know? and, and again, it would be like that's kind of the <laughs> Corinth reputation. Uh, even in classical Greek, to behave like a Corinthian meant that you were saying you're, you're immoral and drunk. You know what I mean? That's, so you, you behave like a Corinthian. Uh, it, it had negative connotations even in the culture, not just in the Christian world. So in Paul's letters, you see this displayed very clearly in the letters to the Corinthians. Um, the church had a host of sins. And again, but it is the church. These are children of God. They're fighting through these things that they've you know, come from that are still the battle of the flesh within them and things that the culture around them is pressing in on them. And you can see they've been affected by the culture around them. Now, so you can start seeing how this is very relevant to us. The culture that we live in affects the way that we think. We take things from that culture and we begin to impose things on the church, trying to reflect the culture to love others or to be able to relate with others. And that's like the last thing we want to do. We are the body of Christ. We want to be completely distinct and different from anything that is not of him, for him, or is going to glorify him. But that is something that we always fight through, and the Corinthian church is fighting through that. They reflected the culture, the idolatry, the adultery, the homosexuality, effeminacy, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness. I mean, he's saying, I mean, he just read it in there. Shane just read that. Of which you were formerly. And like he said in there, not just you fought with these things. These defined you formerly, but you no longer are those things. But any of us in Christ know that what defined us formerly becomes a battle currently. Does that make sense? We have freedom in Christ. He has set us free from sin and from death. There's freedom in that. And at the same time, many of the things that we used to be enslaved by, the habits of our old life, become the lifelong battles of sanctification as a Christian. It doesn't mean we're not free. It means we're now free to fight and we're free to be holy. Does that make sense? The last thing we do is enslave ourselves to the very things that he once freed us from. That's what we're getting at with 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Paul founded this church on his second missionary journey in Acts 18. Uh, this is where he met Aquila and Priscilla. He, uh, they lived here before being driven out from Rome. Eventually he went to Ephesus where he met Apollos. Apollos, who was mighty in word, left Ephesus and actually came to Corinth and preached in Corinth for years after Paul left. Uh, Paul preached in Corinth for a year and a half, making tents, teaching in the synagogue. Again, something that he talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, 9. Um, even though he, he could have taken money from the church, he purposely did not during that time so that he wouldn't be classified with the charlatans that do come in, bring their religion, and take money. So, and Paul's saying, I had the right. I had the right to take money from you. I had the right to have a wife. I have as many rights as you and the liberties that you have. But I purposely restricted myself from those rights and those liberties so that no one, to cause no offense among any of you, so he would preach all day and work all night just to support himself, just so... He would, uh, he would not bring any reproach or uh, there would be no one that can make accusation against him. And all that was out of a love for them. Um, so all that being said, uh, it, there's, again, I can't, I can't do all this today. But if you go read Acts 18, it's really cool what happened in Corinth. You know, because Paul comes to Corinth. He preaches in the synagogue like he always does. And then it was uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader actually came to the Lord. That, that was not normal when he would go preach in the synagogues. And so the, the synagogue leader of Corinth came to the Lord, became a Christian. And then they got another synagogue leader, Sosthenes. And, and, and Sosthenes, like, they, they used him to try to you know, get Paul thrown in prison. Uh, the, 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 the pro-council, the Rome pro-council, I think his name was Guy. I don't remember his name. I don't have it in front of me. But whoever the pro-council was said, basically, I don't care about your silly religious squabbles. And so the Jews... Uh, beat Sosthenes up right there in the court. Uh, and, um, and that's all we know, you know? And then Paul goes on. Well, what's so cool is if you read 1 Corinthians 1, 1, the opening letter, or the opening of this letter we're reading, Paul says, I'm Paul, I'm writing you, and Sosthenes, my brother, which is so cool. So it only leaves, you know, you just got to fill in the blank. 
I just wonder, they left them, you know, Sosthenes bleeding there in the proconsul's floor, and Paul went and picked them up and loved them, and Sosthenes became a Christian after that. What, I don't know, but there, I mean, I don't, there, maybe there's like 20 people named Sosthenes too. So, but the point being, it looks like Crispus and Sosthenes, both synagogue leaders, came to the Lord through the ministry of Paul, all that happened in Corinth. It's just, a, it's just putting these things together helps you to see the love of Paul, to see what God is doing in this church. These are true believers that love the Lord, but they're just being the, the pressure of the culture and their own past lives is a big issue in the church. Many issues, and like I said, you can see this, they had serious issues of uh, worldliness. They had not detached themselves from the culture and the society around them. They were in the church, but they still looked like the world. They reflected the culture around them. Uh, Paul had already written them once before this letter. Uh, The content of that letter uh, seemed to be focused on uh, unleavening the church. There's leaven in the church. You've got to get the leaven out. Leaven's the whole lump. Um, and disassociating with immoral and worldly people in the church. And again, he says in the second letter, or the first letter for us, but this is the second letter he wrote, when I wrote you, I didn't say, you know, disassociate from, from people in the world that are doing these things. I'm saying disassociate with anyone in the church that is practicing these things. That's the point. It, you disassociate with people in the church that are enslaved or preaching, you know, that it's okay to be immoral. It's okay to divorce your wife. It's okay to sue your brother or whatever. He's saying that within the church, that's not okay. And, and you call that out. That's where church discipline and bringing them under and going after them. And that's what it looks like in 2 Corinthians. One of these guys that they, they ended up disciplining uh, repented. And Paul's like, okay, now he's repentant. <laughs> Bring him back in. You don't want to crush him. I mean, when there's repentance, we restore. And, uh, but you can't leave those things in the church because they leaven the whole lump. And, and we've seen, I mean, again, look at your context right now. This woke stuff, right? You leave that in the church, it takes the whole thing down. It's leaven. It will wipe out clarity, discernment, truth, and love in the church, and it destroys the church. You don't you don't leave that stuff in. And it would be the same thing if there's immorality. It would be the same thing if there's hatred, disunity, uh, um, factions, those sort of things. Actually, I, th- I think I wrote this down. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, he says, I wrote you in my letter, the, f- the, the first 1 Corinthians, not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of the world or the covetous of swindlers or with idolaters, but then you would have to go out of the world. It's like, I mean, we're called to go into that and share the gospel. He's talking about the church. I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes. So we're not judging outsiders. We are judging insiders. Uh, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from amongst you. Again, so... We are, we are called to, you. we're spiritually, we, we are filled with the Spirit. We can spiritually appraise those things the Lord's put in front of us. We're always to be examining fruit. You're always to examine uh, a, a teaching and truth, right? I mean, you test the spirits to know whether they're from God. You know, when someone, I mean, again, you know, when we talked last week about legalists, you know, it's usually the legalist that's like calling legalism out everywhere. You know what I mean? And uh, the antinomian, the ones that are enslaved by this thing are the ones throwing up the legalism cards. But it's also the person that's living in sin that's always telling everybody else, do not judge, you know? And, uh, and again, there is a judgment that we should never do. I don't know the heart, soul, mind of anyone in here. But we are to judge fruit. We are to judge words and truth. We judge it according to God's revealed word. And we judge fruit according to the spirit, the fruit of the spirit revealed to us in scripture and the character of Christ. And all of that is so that then we know how to speak, how to act, and what to do in those situations. Um, and so um, all that being said, but, but we, are not to, we are not the eternal judge. There's going to be many people that you look at the fruit, you look at the words, you're like, yeah, that's a brother or sister in Christ. But, but God knows. Um, Judas... I mean, think about that at the very end, right? Judas at the very, very end, after three years of following Christ, three years of being in close association with the disciples, none of the disciples were able to discern that he was the traitor. Again, so obviously, our judgment isn't perfect. But they were able to judge many other things along the way with discernment. So again, you've got to leave the soul in God's hands, but you're always judging fruit and you're always discerning, especially when it comes to the body of Christ. We have a stewardship. We're shepherding one another. Uh, we're, we're unleavening the church and getting this stuff out of the church. Um, MacArthur says, uh, uh-oh, there it is. 
uh, in, I think this came from his commentary. I can't remember where I got this. He says, like many Christians today, the Corinthian believers had great difficulty in not mimicking the unbelieving and corrupt society around them. Again, that's relatable. They usually managed to stay a little higher than the world morally, but they were moving downward in the same direction as the world. I just thought that was a good quote because that's what we tend to do, right? The church just stays a little bit above the culture. And as the culture declines and gets more and more sinful, the church like declines just a little bit above it. You know what I mean? But we can't do that. We are distinct. We are different. We are not of this world. We should be striving for holiness, righteousness, and Christ-likeness, which would be a stark difference than the culture around us. They wanted to be in God's kingdom while keeping one foot in the kingdom of this world. They wanted to have the blessings of the new life, but hang on to pleasures of the old. They wanted to have what they thought was best of both worlds, but Paul plainly warned them that that was impossible. And again, if you think this is outside of you, you've got to take those, take that all, get the eyes on yourself. All of us have some of this stuff. There's things that are in our lives that if we lived 100 years ago or in a different culture, we would not be thinking we're okay or practicing or doing. So again, it's like the whole point is, is don't just be looking at this going, I really hope Charlie's listening right now. You know what I mean? You're looking at yourself going, I really hope I'm listening right now, and I need to be examining my own heart and my own life and striving for Christ-likeness. Because there are going to be some things that we talk about in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 that, that are kind of hard to swallow. Um, again, 1 Corinthians 6 through 9, we already, or 6, 9 through 11, we already kind of talked about this, but he says, you know, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lists all those things, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That means set apart by God for him. You're made holy, and you were justified by him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So all that being said, we are no longer what we were. We are new creatures, new creations in Jesus Christ. I think that's good foundational context then to go, okay, let's open our Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians 8. So open your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians 8. And what we want to see here, the overall uh, title or theme is that love lays aside liberty for others. Love will abandon liberty for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. So let's read it real quick together, just the whole chapter, because we're not going to do, um, I mean, we're, we're just doing a big overview here, but just look at the whole thing. So all that being said, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. So now what he's, that, that refers back to chapter 7, verse 1, where he says, now concerning things about which you wrote, and then you start answering. So this is another thing they wrote him about. This is obviously a problem in the church. They're like, what do we do with all this meat? The sacrifice to idols. And then you can see what they wrote him about in his response. He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So this is, this is good. He's like, we, we, we understand truth. And he says, and knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That's a very important point. Knowledge makes arrogant, love edifies. It doesn't mean that knowledge is bad by itself, but knowledge without love is bad. Uh, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, so that's kind of the, the premise. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, so here's knowledge that comes through, good theology, good doctrine, good truth. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Is that true? Yes. Is that good to know? Yes. Is that going to inform how you do things? Yes, right? That's good theology. And that there is no God but one. Is that true? Yes. Is that biblical theology? Yes. And that should inform how you do things, right? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So he's just saying, I mean, look around. There's many things called gods and there's many lords in this world. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. That is sound biblical theology. You got the Trinity in there. You got Jesus being God. You got the Father being God. We know there's no other gods. There's only one God. God, the Father who created all things, we exist for him. And Christ, we exist through him. If it weren't for Christ, we wouldn't even be into this existence. And so it's just like, that is solid truth. Then he says, however, not all men have this knowledge. 
So not, not all people are there with you solidly doctrinally. And he says, but some being accustomed to the idol now eat, I'm sorry, until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak and defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we, uh, if we do eat. All right. So let's look at some principles in here. And the first thing we want to look at uh, is, uh, whoop, actually, I kind of, I think I got ahead of myself here. Uh, well, yeah, let's just go right here. Pride destroys others. All right, so this is the first point we're going to get out of 1 Corinthians 1 through 8. Pride destroys others. Solid doctrine. That was solid, right? I mean, that, you would get that in Fundamentals of the Faith. But solid doctrine, not saturated with love, is very dangerous. Truth without love is not good, all right? You, it must be saturated with love, and it must come, uh, you know, coded in the, the love of Christ. Um, some of the things I, I left out that I was going to throw in there, but again, I think we just need to keep moving, was just the context of, of just the, even how the Lord um, uh, enlightens us, and we understand things, and at the same time, many times because of stuff we came from, or even our just immaturity in the Lord, you know, we might not be doctrinally aligned. I, I, you can, again, look at our context. We have a church of 700 people are here. Do you think if we set all 700 down and we start asking theological questions, we're just going to be like, bam, 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 like line for line, right on the same page? No. If you start asking about convictions, do you think every single person here is going to have the exact same convictions line by line all the way down? No. Does that mean that there's many truths? And tons of confusion? No. But there's, there's one spirit working in the hearts and the minds of each of his children. There's going to be some people in here that aren't children, but there's going to be many people that are children of God that are growing in their understanding of his word. They're growing in holiness. They're growing in Christ-likeness. And we're at different places when it comes to a lot of these things. But there's still one spirit, one faith, one calling, one work, one God and Father who's over all, for all, through all. And he is making us into the image of his son, one image, Right? But we're, we're all working through this together. So, again, also remember that as we talk about this because understanding that is going to cause us to love one another and to love and be patient with one another as the Lord is working these things out in the hearts and minds of all of his children. And you can still have discernment to know whether or not this is a leavening thing that will destroy the church or whether or not this is a, a child of God that is in the process of, of sanctification. But pride destroys others. If your theology leads you to defend your liberties, to celebrate your freedoms, to stand in judgment over your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not wisdom from above. All right? So, yeah, you might have good theology, but if you're using that theology to think you're high and mighty and better than these people in here that don't have the same outworkings of that theology as you, you've got a gaping, gaping hole in your walk with the Lord. This is pride. If your knowledge of God's word leads you to justify unrighteousness, justify selfishness, justify unholiness, or justify worldliness, then you don't know what you think you know. That's what Paul was saying in those opening lines. Anyone that has knowledge knows that I, there's a lot I don't know, and I'm always in the process of learning. You think that you know more than you know, then the first thing you ought to know is you don't know what you know. <laughs> I don't know what I just said. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He's saying, we know that we have knowledge, right? Knowledge makes arrogant, love uh, edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. I mean, that, that should be right there. You know, if you're just sitting here going, yeah, I've, I've nailed down. I mean, I'd say all the time. And again, we're striving for discernment. We're striving for right theology. I don't study the word and go, I, you know, I don't know what it means. I'll just move on. I mean, when I don't know what something means, I dig that out. I want to know what it means. And at the same time, I know that there is way more that I don't know than I do know. And God is always refining my theology and always changing me, and I'm always growing in Him. And so, again, I think the more we understand the Word, the more we realize there is very little that we know about God, and there's very little that we know about life. But the little we do know, man, He's given us that, and we are responsible for those things. And so, all that being said... Uh, you know, this cuts right into the, the heart of pride. Uh, I remember, well, that's a, a story that I'll say for another day. <laughs> um, I, actually, this is funny. So when I came to Lord, I am going to tell this story. 
Uh, when I came to the Lord, I remember th- this, this lady that had just really led us to Christ, took us to church, all this stuff. I, I just had to go find her, and I just wanted to confess to her my hypocrisy and the deceitfulness. And I said I was this, but I'm really not this. I'm this over here. And it was so funny because she was like, I know. And I was just thinking, like, <laughs> like she wasn't saying, I knew all your sins. I know what you're doing when you're not around. She's just saying, I know you're a hypocrite, you know. But again, many times this is the love and the patience of others in the church with us, you know. So all of a sudden you'll be struck by your, the depth of your pride, and you'll go to some person and confess it. And they knew the whole time. They, they love you. That's what I tell our girls all the time. You know, when you have pride and the arrogance and things like that, like, we're always going to love you, and we're always going to put up with you. We're always going to be patient with you. But everyone here knows you're proud. You know what I mean? And, and so just remember that, too. Again, we all have things like this that people, I always wonder what you guys think about me. I really don't care. And at the same time, it's like, what did they see? You know what I mean? Because, <laughs> again, I mean, we all walk out the door, and not in a gossip or, gossipy or slanderous way, but, but we discern things, and, and we understand people, and we love them, but we love them where they're at. And that we all have immaturities. We all got pride. We all got holes. We're all going to die. Do you know this? You're going to die with wrong theology. And that's okay. Now, it, it's not okay to be wrong. Like, you need to figure out what God says. But understand, on the day that you die, you still won't have nailed it. And you're not going to die with perfect... Calvin, he died with holes in his theology. Luther, yep. All those guys. And you. And me. And you're going to die with unmortified sin. But here's the thing. You are called to be faithful in both categories. You can't be lazy and not know what the Word of God says. You're responsible to submit to it, obey Him, follow Him. And you're responsible to be holy and loving to the level of perfection that Jesus Christ himself exemplified, right? And you're going to fail, and he'll take care of that. So you be faithful, but just know that you're not nailing it. You know what I mean? And the people around you are all patient, and they love you, and that's why we're all still friends, and that's what the Lord is doing. (laughs) True knowledge of the word of God will always lead to love. Love of others over and above yourself and a love of Jesus Christ over and above everything. Uh, pride destroys others, but, but love will build up. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the, I mean, the Corinthians, obvious, but by what he says here, desired spiritual gifts. They desired to be like the apostles. They desired to speak in tongues. They desired to prophesy. They desired those things. And Paul is telling them there's a higher, a higher road here, which is love. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have the gift of prophecy, and if I know all mysteries. So this is, this is hyperbolic language saying if if i had the prophetic gift given by god and knew everything that god knew and if i had all faith i I had faith given to me by god that i could do the things that only christ could do remove mountains and all that but i have not love i'm nothing so again you take the gift of prophecy and the gift of faith and you talk about the the utmost extent of it you know christ said if you had faith small as much said you could move this mountain from there to there and paul's like you remember that if i had that faith but i had not love i'm nothing so again even spiritual giftedness and all that without love is nothing. Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. True knowledge without God's, uh, I'm sorry, true knowledge even of God's word and a desire for spiritual you know, uh, to, to, to be high spiritually, if you want to say it that way, without a love to others will destroy uh, your relationship with others. It will destroy the church. Um, we must lay down our pride out of a love for others and understand that we are nothing if we do not have love. So that being said, the next point is this. Love develops others. So when we look at this and we talk about knowledge, that's good. They had good knowledge. They understood there's only one God. Idols aren't even a real thing. So meat sacrificed to an idol is just meat, right? It's just meat. And so if it's cheaper meat, buy the meat. And that's what he's basically saying, and that's what he's getting to. And at the same time, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as just, well, it's an idol. It's not a God. It's just meat. It's a lot more complicated because there's people involved in this. And, and, and this is where the love thing comes in. Love develops others. Freedom should be limited by our love for fellow believers. Our freedoms are, are uh, limited by our love for fellow believers. 
Again, I didn't read all the verses, but we know that pride comes before the fall. We know that pride is, uh, God hates pride. He abhors pride. Uh, we know that, that uh, with pride comes dishonor. But we know that love always edifies. And love, there's no law against love. Love proves that we're known by God. In fact, Jesus even said that, right? That they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love others. You're going to love them the way that Christ loved them. That, and again, we don't define love. We go to the word to see what is that love. What we understand from the Bible is this. The love is self-sacrificial. We understand that love is submissive, and we understand that love uh, gives deference or prefers others over ourselves. We're slaves of Christ, and we're slaves to others because of our love for Christ and our love for others. Our freedom should limit the way... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, freedom will be limited by love. Love will limit our freedoms. Philippians 2, 3 through 5, is, this is the heart of what he's saying here. He says... Do nothing from selfishness, do nothing from pride, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regarding others is more important than you, and regarding their well-being is more important than your own well-being will govern your freedoms. It'll govern what you eat. It'll govern where you go. It will govern what you listen to, what you watch, how you dress. It will govern those things. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he spells out what Christ did, how Christ was submissive, how Christ preferred others, and how Christ laid down his life. So again, our freedoms are limited by love. Even Christ did this. Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 uh, give the same admonition, the same uh, example. Ephesians 4 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So you say you're a Christian, then live that way. And he says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love. No longer like the Gentiles who basically just in the futility of their mind do what they want to do. And then in Ephesians 5, he sums it up by saying this, be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. So that's the standard. Be holy. Be perfect. Imitate God. Love like Christ loved. Again, the standard is greater and higher than we could ever meet, but that's what's driving everything we do. It's not just some knowledge of the word that drives you to then be able to be like, well, I'm free. There are no idols, and it's not even a real thing, so I can do what I want to do. It's where we're, we have that theology that governs how we see things, but then love will drive how that is displayed amongst the brethren. And then he goes and talks about all the, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically we're to walk as children of light. We're not partakers of the, the world anymore. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about all this. You learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You're putting off unfruitful deeds of darkness. Uh, you even expose them. Uh, he says, be careful how you walk. You don't just live. You're examining how you live. You're examining the context of where you're living. You're understanding the people around you, where they are in the Lord. And you're striving to love them. You're patient with them. I mean, it may be that you watch this and and you talk about this over here, but you never talk about this, that, in this context. Does that make sense? And that may not be hypocrisy. It might be driven by love. And it might be driven by understanding others and loving the way that Christ loved you. And you're being careful. You're making the most of your time. You're not foolish. You understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying don't be controlled by uh, uh, alcohol, but be controlled by the Spirit. Speaking to one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even uh, to God. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ to God. Even the Father. And look at this. And he ends it with this. You want to know what spirit-filled living looks like? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he starts talking about our families. Right? Wives to your husbands. Husbands to your wives. Children to your parents. But again, that's it. You want to know how to love others? You prefer them over yourself. You look out for their interests rather than your own. And you submit yourself and subject yourself to them. And sometimes that means submitting your freedoms to their restrictions because you love them. And you don't want to cause anything in their life that would be a hindrance or cause them to be destroyed by your freedoms. Does that make sense? Love limits liberty. So that's our next point. So love develops others. Pride destroys others. And then we're going to say it this way. Do not harm his anointed ones. Let's read this together. Verse 9 through 12. So after we talk about the theology, yeah, there are no such things as idols. Yes, just meat. Okay. But then he says this. But take care that this liberty of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Yeah, your theology is good. Yes, there's only one God. Yes, it's just meat, and it's way cheaper. But make sure that your liberty does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. That's scary. You don't want to be the person that becomes the conduit of Satan to ruin another child of God, right? And then God's got big words for that. The brother, look at this, for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Listen, those are strong words that we got to pay attention to. Are you free in Christ? A hundred percent. Is there only one God? There's no such thing as idols. Absolutely. Do you need to have good theology, biblical theology? Yes. Can you ruin someone with your theology? Uh Uh-huh. And can you destroy people with your liberties? Yes. And is Christ okay with that? No. That is sin. It may not be sin to eat the meat. And it may be total sin to eat the meat. Does that make sense? So, again, gray things can become black depending on why, how, when, where we do those gray things. Do you get what I'm getting at here? We have to make sure that in our freedom, in our liberty, we are not harming the children of God. Again, we we saw it in verse 9, take care of your liberty does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 11 through 12, your knowledge can ruin a weaker brother and then who, who Christ died for, and you're sinning against the brethren, you're sinning against others, and you're sinning against Christ. Uh, Matthew 18, did I write this down? Uh, Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus talking to the disciples. Now the context of these little children come to him, but the disciples say, no, you know, he doesn't have time for this. And Jesus had some really strong words for his disciples there, but it plays out in the, con- I mean, different context, but same principle. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, uh, to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, do you have freedom to eat the meat? Yes, eat the meat. But if you, you're eating the meat causes you to ruin one of the children of God or cause them to stumble, it would be better to die than to eat that meat. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at here. And so he's telling the disciples there, don't prevent the kids from coming to me. But Paul, in the same way, is saying, don't ever eat that meat if it's going to ruin your brother. And that's love. That's how love would govern that liberty. Uh, so, again, the, the action itself may not be sin. But if it causes someone else to stumble, and again, actually in Matthew 18, he goes on to say the same thing. He says, stumbling blocks are going to come. I'm sorry, this is the uh, 7 through 10 right after this. Stumbling blocks will come. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks are going to come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. We talk to our kids about this all the time. We're all going to sin. I mean, we're going to sin against each other every day. My girls are going to sin. I'm going to sin. My wife's going to sin. We're all going to sin. But make sure... In that, that you're always repenting of your sin, you're asking for forgiveness, reconcile those relationships, because the last thing you want to do is be the agent of stumbling for whoever, you know? This is, we talk about this a lot of times in, in, in our family. You know, we, we always, provocation is bad. When we provoke others to anger, you understand that's a big sin in the sight of God. But in our culture, we're like, we push their buttons, you know? It's just like this little silly thing, you know? Oh, they know how to push my buttons, and they push my buttons, and my buttons get pushed. It's like, we got to stop talking like that. It's like you're provoking your sister. You're becoming an, a tool of Satan right now. Because when your sister gets angry, she's sinning against God because she's angry at you and hating you. But you were the agent that Satan used to cause your sister to get angry. You're a tool used by him to provoke another child of God to anger and hatred. That just makes it a little bit different than saying push buttons. So again, is it going to happen? Uh-huh. Are our siblings going to get angry at each other? Yes. But when they do, teach them and show them what to do. You can't be that. And you must repent. And you must reconcile. And you must ask for forgiveness. But I think it's the same thing. Apply that little principle to kids, to us. Can you eat the meat? Sure. Is it an idol? No. Is there one God? Absolutely. Is it cheaper to get that meat? And can you enjoy it and rejoice in the Lord as you eat it? Yes. But if you eat it in front of this guy... You're an instrument of Satan that's crushing your fellow believer in Christ. 
You've got to be aware of that. Does that make sense? You've got to examine those things. We do not want to destroy the blood-bought children of God by our liberties and freedoms. And we do not tear down the work of sanctification that God is building up because we're going around talking about the fact that, well, I don't think drinking beer is wrong, and I don't think it's bad to watch that R-rated movie. And I don't, it's like, stop. You might be destroying something with your, your loose tongue and your loose living. And, and you've got to be aware of that. Does that make sense? Now, again, does that mean you can't enjoy freedoms? No. But you've got to understand the context, and you've got to understand that those things are limited by love. And you've got you to work that out. And I can't sit here and tell you this is what it looks like in your life. But you ought to be examining your relationship with one another. You ought to be examining your motives and your heart and your intentions. You ought to be examining whether or not this is a freedom or it's an it's a, it's a enslavement. You ought to be examining what your words are going to do to cause if your brother's weaker. I mean, you need to know whether they're weaker or not. You need to know where they are in Christ. And you need to make sure that you're speaking, acting in love when you're around your fellow believers. Um, so all that being said, uh, and again, Romans 14 talks about this as well. Paul says in Romans 14, if, we're, if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. So fill in the blank. Take out the word food and put in because of movies, because of music, because of a beer, because of whatever, uh, your brother is hurt. You're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food, fill in the blank, him for whom Christ died. Same principle, different church. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Again, there's the theology. Is the food clean? Yes. But he says they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So is the meat bad? Is the music bad? I mean, the music itself may not be sinful, but it may be evil. You know what I mean? you got, you got to know, are you offending when you're doing this? Is it, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Again, I mean, this plays out in many different ways. The way you dress, where you go, what you partake in, what is part of your life, those things all have implications that you've got to think through. And they're not just gray area freedoms. They are in one sense, and they're not in another sense. And those things have to marry together. We're free, but we're bound by love. We're free in Christ, we're bound by love. And finally, the last point is this. Submit to each other in love. That's verse 13, and that's the, 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 the final, or this is the, the end of this chapter. It leads into the next principle. He says, therefore, here's the sum up. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Think about that. And again, fill in your favorite thing. If music causes my brother to stumble, I will never listen to music again. If beer causes my brother to stumble, I will never drink beer again. If this place causes my brother, I mean, again, just fill in those things that you define as freedoms and then put it in that, in that verse and see if you're like, oh, no, 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 that's my freedom. I mean, again, this is a good way to see whether or not it's a freedom or whether or not you're still, you got some things to work out here. He says, so that, here's the purpose, I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's it. That's what we're aiming at. I don't want anything in my life that is a freedom. I have freedom to enjoy things. I have a lot of freedom in Christ to enjoy things in this life. And I love them. But if my loves and my freedoms cause any of you to stumble, then I, I, would, I would rather not. I'm not saying I'm, I'm like nailing it here. I'm just saying that's what I want my heart to be. If it causes you to stumble, then forget it. We can toss that forever. We can refrain from that forever. If that be the case, I think that's what Paul's saying here. If it's the meat that's the problem, then we'll eat vegetables. I mean, just eliminate it. Eliminate whatever is going to provoke or cause your brother to stumble. Again, the thing itself is not sin. Why you're doing it is sin, and what, ca- what comes out of it is sin. And again, the principle, there's, there's other places in the Bible that talk about this. Uh, Romans 15, actually Ephesians 5.21, we just read it, be subject to one another in fear of Christ. Again here, the strong bear the weaknesses of those without strength. It's not strength to go around talking about your liberties. It's strength to bear their weaknesses. That's strength. You want to see what spiritual depth looks like? You would be willing to submit yourself to other people's convictions out of a love for them. That's, that's strength. Again, I'm, 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 I'm lacking in that. Uh, and, and he says, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and for his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. I mean, you want a standard? 
Christ didn't go around just pleasing himself and doing what he desired. He submitted himself to his father, and he submitted himself to a bunch of things that, that people thought were right. I mean, even some of the pharisaical things, he did it at different times, just to not cause offense in those times. But then there were other times where he pushed back against that. But he's God, not you, you know? And he knew when that time was right. The reproaches of those whom reproach you fell on me, it says. Now may the God who gives prefer- uh, uh, perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. You want to love the way Christ loved us, according to Jesus Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We have got weaker and stronger brothers and sisters in this room. We got a lot of different convictions. We have a lot of different opinions about things. Some of those are based on things that, we're, that we ought to get rid of, things that we're exposing ourselves to, and things in this culture that shouldn't even be a part of our life. And then some of those things are driven by a, a desire to glorify Christ, to be holy as He is holy, to strive to imitate him. And, and sometimes you don't know on the outside which is going on. I remember when we came to the Lord and we came to this church, there was a lot of people in this church that we thought, man, there's a lot of rules here, you know? And then after we got to know a lot of these people, we were like, these people are serious about holiness, and I'm not. And, and that was convicting. We learned that a lot of these people were super patient with us as we came in with all of our silly, worldly, cultural baggage from California and band days that like, you know, and we thought we were so cool and awesome, and you guys were just like, oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> but here's his command. John 15. You want to hear what Christ told us? Here's the commandment of Christ. That you love one another just as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Again, this is not just sacrificing your body and, your, and ending this present life for the sake of someone else. This is laying down your freedoms and your liberties and loving others the way that Christ loved us. And so, all that being said, do we have liberty? Do we have freedom in Christ? 100% absolutely. Are we also bound and enslaved to Christ and to others? Yes. And it is our job to figure those things out so that we destroy others with our liberties. And we're striving through love to edify, encourage, build up, and cause one another to become more like Christ. And if that means not doing fill-in-the-blank with you guys, well, then so be it. We could sacrifice anything for one another because we love one another because that's how Christ loved us. All right, let me pray for us.